0: Mean Line Media presents the Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast.
1: Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Kevin Waits again, and I'd like to welcome you to a new episode of Safe Conversations, where we really unpack our bags. We talk about race, culture, sex, everything that's different about us To somehow find a way to move forward. Uh, I'd like to take this opportunity just to thank my listeners all over the country, in all 50 states, in Jamaica, in Canada, in India, in Argentina, in Mexico. And I want you to know, as long as you keep listening, me and my guests are going to keep talking. But I don't want you to get it twisted and think that just because it's called safe conversation, we have soft conversations. Nothing's off the table. We kick our shoes off, we unpack our bags, and we really talk. I'm extremely happy to welcome our guests today. Miss Lindsay Long, welcome.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the the chance to be interviewed by you. I've heard some really good conversations you've had with your other
1: guests. I appreciate that. And uh, and and again, I'm really excited and I just want to dive right in. Um, can you start out by telling us just a little bit about yourself, your family, your background, and your education? Whatever it is you think the listeners need to know about you.
2: Sure thing. Um, well, I'm married. I've been married for... Coming up on 12 years. Uh, we have two young kids who keep me very busy. They drive me crazy, but I love them to death. Um, I've actually I like to joke and tell people I'm the square in the family because um, I'm born in California originally, but I kind of I moved around a lot. I bounced all over Maryland, D.C. area. Spent most of my time in Georgia, but um, in California, uh, my dad was the drummer and um, co-founder for a funk group called Confunction. And so I grew up in the music business. My mother, also um, after graduating from Howard University, she majored in lighting and theater. She got a job working with the Delphonics and works for Stax Records. And that's how she met my dad. And you know, so it just it moved on. And um, my brother, my younger brother, is a real estate agent. So everybody in my family's kind of been self-employed or done something in entertainment. And then there's Lindsey, <laughs> who got the government job because. You know, I needed a paycheck every two weeks and some benefits. Um, but, yeah, so this is kind of how I grew up. Um, I think moving made me very adaptable to a lot of different environments. And as you know, in law enforcement, you're in a lot of different environments, whether you like or not. And when I went to when I went off to college, I did major in criminal justice. I got my bachelor's in criminal justice. And the funny thing about that is I didn't even know I was going to become a police officer. People always ask, like, did you want to do that since you were little? And I used to lie and say yes, because I felt like it would hurt people's feelings if I said no. But the honest truth is I went to college because my mother said, hey, you got to do something. And I'm like, well, uh, she'll still pay my bills if I go to school. Criminal justice had the least amount of math classes. And then when it came to graduate, I needed a job. Uh, but I did have some really, really great professors in criminal justice. It definitely piqued my interest as I went along, especially when I did my internship before graduating.
1: Wow, that's that's pretty dope. Uh, just just to hear the background, you know how people end up where they where they end up. You know what I'm saying? Uh, as you were talking, I was thinking about. The fact I never wanted to be in law enforcement, never had any intention, uh, you know, when I went to college initially, I went to college for broadcast communications. I wanted to. And here I am now doing a podcast, which is crazy. But I wanted to work for BT or ESPN. I, I, I love sports. That's what I wanted to do. Well, uh, off to college, I go on a football scholarship, uh, was not as mature as I needed to be, didn't make the best out of my opportunity and realized that I needed to get my life together. Uh, And so, you know, I joined the U.S. Army. Uh, and and ended up in law enforcement four years later. Uh, But that's how I started. But just as you were talking, I was like, wow, you know, I kind of went the same way. didn't intend on being involved, but once you get involved and you realize uh, the service and the commitment and the fulfillment you get from that industry uh, is something else. So I know, Lindsay, you have a very inspirational story to share with us. Um, Very inspirational. Uh, You know, I get choked up when I think about it, but I want you to start, I want to start out by asking you a very serious question. And the listeners may not understand why I'm asking you this right now, but they will, they'll, they'll fall in line and they'll understand. But the question is, is why is Lindsay Long still here? Why are you here?
2: I think I honestly think I'm still here because I still have a lot to give to people. I have always been the type of person who really, really enjoys helping people. And I didn't realize how big that passion was in me until a, a few years ago when uh, I was involved in a critical incident. And that can kind of, that could definitely put things in perspective for you when you have those, those, those under-death experiences, so to speak. And like I said, I've always been a helper. And when you're put in a position to have to keep still and it's not your choice to have to keep still and really, really have to go into yourself and think about things, I realized my purpose here on this earth is to help people and to talk about my own traumas and talk about my own struggles so that people don't feel so alone. I, you know, I we live in a world now where we can we can create like a fantasy world in our phones and we forget to connect with people. And when you connect with people, man, that's like a game changer right there. Just just sitting in the room with somebody and feeling that exchange of energy back and forth with somebody and being like, oh, wow, like you're going through the same thing I am. And I'm like, yeah, because we're humans We're you can be an introvert. You can be a so-called loner, but we're not put on this earth to be by ourselves. We need companionship and you need someone else to kind of help you carry those heavy, heavy things we go through in life. And if you're going through it, why would you think that the person next to you and either side of you really is either going through it at that current moment or has gone through something at some point in time. I don't care what people put on social media. I try to tell my kids all the time, most of what you see on social media is not even true. And people aren't that happy all the time. People aren't that perfect perfect all the time. I don't even want to be around people like that, to tell you the truth, you know? But I, we, we have just a lot to share, a lot to give. If we just took the a, a time to be like, wow, like a human struggling, this person might be struggling too, why don't we help other through this heavy moment? And that's, I think that's definitely one of the, the main reasons why I'm still here.
1: I like what you said, Lindsay, about us being here uh, to help each other. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and, and again, you know, I'm an introvert. People may not believe it. You know what I'm saying? But but I really am. But, you know, it's it's so ironic. Every Monday morning, I do a uh, social media post just to help my network get going for the week, Right. And so this morning, it was one hand can't clap. And I just talked about how we need each other. You know what I'm saying? And, and how, yeah, you know what? It's an old proverb. And, you know, technically, can you make it work? Clapping with one hand? Yeah. And and so my my other end of the spectrum on that is you may survive. Clap in one hand, but you will thrive. We really need each other. You know what I'm saying? So I, I appreciate you saying that. And I see you smiling. I know you got something to say. So what's on your mind?
2: No, I, I want to come back to that. Uh, when I, I know there's another question you're going to ask me, I, I, then it'll be kind of out of order. But I that that just gave me chills when you said that. Oh my goodness! So uh, that gave me chills because. When we get, basically with my injury, I was involved in a shooting in 2018, and one of my injuries made it so I, I was shot in my right forearm, and I was in a cast, and the <laughs> I got shot on a Monday, I got released from the hospital on a Wednesday, it was October 31st, which is Halloween. Well, November 1st, I had tickets that my husband had bought for me for my birthday to go see the R&B singer Maxwell. And while I'm in the pre-op area at the hospital on Monday night, I looked at the surgeon and I said, hey, you think I could be out of the hospital by Thursday night? Because I have a concert to go to. My husband bought me tickets to see Maxwell. seats close enough to get pregnant, as I say, uh, by his words. And I really need to go. And they looked at me like I had three kids. Long story short, I get released on Wednesday. I go to the concert with my very pregnant girlfriend Mm -hmm. uh, from college. And we're sitting there. And I keep having to clap on my thigh with my left hand because I'm in a cast on my right. And I tell people all the time. Let me tell you why she's such a good friend to me. She's had my back through and through. She's helped me with my kids, even now, but especially back then when we needed childcare after my my shooting. And without even asking. She held up her right hand. I held up my left hand and we clapped together. Like that's that's why what you just said gave me absolute chills because that's, you're 100% right. I, I could clap, but it made it so much better to have my friend there help me along.
1: Wow. Now, that's awesome. You know, and and it, and it helps me realize, and I hope it helps you realize as well, that we're supposed to be sitting here talking right now. This is no mistake no mistake. So you you, you talked briefly about uh, a critical incident that happened to you in 2018. Can you you tell us uh, about it? Can you tell us how it changed your life as well as everyone that's connected to you?
2: Yeah, sure can. So Monday, October 29th, 2018, my zone partner and I were going to serve an order of protection and the order of protection stemmed from domestic violence. So domestic violence had occurred sometime, I believe it was over the weekend, so like late, late Friday night, early Saturday morning. And a boyfriend and girlfriend were living together. The boyfriend was abusive, he was also an alcoholic, and we were going to serve him with an order of protection so that he could be removed from the residence. That morning, when she got up to go to work, that well, he assumed she got up to go to work that morning. But when the first officer who attempted to serve the order of protection knocked on his door, then he knew she didn't go to work. She went straight to our headquarters to fill out the paperwork for the order of protection. He didn't answer the door, so now he's mad. And now, um, you know, like I said, he knows she went to the police. This is about, my partner must have called me about maybe 2.30-ish in the afternoon, at the time, I worked 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. And she called me about 2.30, said, hey, you want to go serve this order of protection with me? I said, sure thing. We meet down the street over the paperwork. Nothing popped out at us because I get that question a lot. Like, hey, like, what about this criminal history things like that? And I, I also mentioned that, and you you'll probably can attest to this as well, sometimes states don't share information the way they should. Without you going through a whole bunch of hoops just to get that information. So if we had known then what we found out later, we would not have gone in the house the way we did. But that's neither here nor there at this point. We went off the information we had, and my partner asked when she took the report. And my partner also asked as we were walking up to the house, "Are there any firearms in the house?" The girlfriend slash victim said no, but that doesn't mean there aren't any firearms. And I live in Arizona, so I assume everybody has a gun all the time. And the house is small; it's a like a, a house with a carport. So if you're facing the house, the carport's to the left, the house is to the right. His car was in the driveway. And the plan was, and we've done this before, when someone is in the house that won't let us in, we will go with somebody who has standing. So she lives at the residence. So she has standing. She has rights to the property. She can let us in. We were going to make contact with him, him for the domestic violence, and then serve him with the order of protection. That was the plan. And we've done that several times before, right? She unlocks the exterior door in the carport. And that door led into a small laundry room area. And then there was an interior door that led the laundry room into the kitchen. So I remember the girlfriend didn't go all the way in the house, which struck me odd because we've been on uh, service um, orders before. And somebody like, I'm going to watch you get your stuff and leave kind of thing, especially with the relationship. But she didn't do that. So I thought that was odd. As soon as I had that thought, I see my partner taking out her flashlight And I'm like, why is she taking out her flashlight? It is bright. Like here in Arizona, it's pretty bright that time of day. Well, I stepped in the house. As my eyes were adjusting, the house was really dark. Not completely unusual here in Arizona because we use black curtains a lot. I remember feeling like the house was thoroughly dark. And my partner said the same thing later when we talked about it. Soon as I finished that thought, and these thoughts are going really quickly. They're like one on top of the other. I hear her speaking to somebody that I can't see. So I step into the house a little bit more. There's a hallway that she can see down that I can't. And there's a male walking up the hallway, really calm, not walking fast, not walking slow, hands in his pockets, never said anything to us. My partner announced who we were and why we were there. And she said that we needed to speak with him. And he probably was between, I say we're between 12 and 15 of us. And she told him something to the effect of taking his hands out of his pockets. Well, he did. And when he came out, his right hand came out of his pocket and he had a six shot revolver and he immediately started firing. And if you've ever been involved in a, a, a situation like that, spatially, things get weird. Things look bigger than they are. They look smaller. Time slows down. It speeds up. Well, for me, the room looked a lot bigger than it did. And everything slowed down. Like I remember saying gun and it was almost like it was tick, tick tick, tick. Like as he was bringing it up and as I was going to bring my firearm out as well, the first shot went off. My partner was standing to my left. She's a little smaller than me, I actually thought she got shot in the face, but I didn't have time to turn and look to my left to confirm that because now he's running at me. When he came across with the second shot, I got, I was trying to draw with my right hand and I got shot in my right forearm. And that actually caused my arm to like, like freeze up around or cramp up around my gun because I turned to run out of the the laundry room door. He fired again. He shot me on my upper left arm. He fired back at the house. I'm assuming to try to shoot at my partner that hit the door jam. She was able to return fire. She shot him one time and she hit him with that one bullet. But at the same time, he fired at me again. And I actually got shot on the lower left side of my back. My vest did catch it, but boy, did it hurt because he was only two steps behind me, and I got hit at the very bottom of my vest. Like when I tell you the very bottom, if I were to show you the Kevlar, there's tape that they put at the the bottom of the Kevlar. I got shot in the tape at at the bottom, so it's right over my kidneys, knocks me off my feet. Boom, I go down. He luckily runs in the opposite direction of where I fell down, and he had one more shot left in his firearm, and he used that to take his own life. Uh, Later, I did find out that my partner was shot. She got shot in her upper left arm as well. And, um, you know, when I was down on the ground, I thought I was down there for a long time, but my partner said, and my body camera confirmed, I went down and I popped right back up, but it didn't feel like that. It felt like I was down on the ground for like 30 seconds or so. And all these thoughts rushed through my head, everything from I'm paralyzed because I couldn't feel my legs for a second to did I use the bathroom on myself because I can't feel my legs and I did have to go to the restroom before. Where is he? Because I don't want to get shot in my face like if if he's standing over me. And then all my instructors from my academy in Georgia, that's where I started my police career, Gwinnett County, Gwinnett County PD. All of my instructors popped in my head. You will stay in the fight. You will go home. You know, you get up, you continue to fight. And I can see them plain as day. And then my husband and my my kids popped in my head as well. My daughter was 22 months and my, my son was four at the time. And I was very inspirational. And I did curse at myself. And I said, bitch, get up, because this is not where we die. If he's going to kill me. He's going to have to work hard at it. And he's going to be down the street. And there'll be evidence from this point all the way down. And I jumped up, jumped behind cover, there was actually a tree in Arizona. We have a lot of cacti here, but there was actually a full grown mature tree that I could take cover behind. And because of the time of day, the location and the day of the week, we had double squads we were right off of a main thoroughfare. So from the time my partner put it out on the radio that we were involved in a shooting so when I can hear sirens on my body camera, which was about 90 seconds. And as you know, that's really fast. And we were able to be uh, extracted from the scene and taken down the street to a staging area where, you know, there was, I don't want to say chaos, but that's what it seems like. Because everybody's screeching into the parking lot and there's helmets and there's rifles and there's shields and, and the like. And I was waiting on the ambulance to get there because I'm in pain and I need pain meds. That's all I remember. I cursed. I was sweating. I was apologizing. And uh, my shift my mate who extracted me from the scene kept... Assured me that I was going to be okay and that I was safe. But I was like, man, I just really need those payments. (laughs) I feel like I'm going to pass out. And I can't even, like, it's hard to explain to people because I tell people my brain and my mind are on two different pages because my mind was in, oh my goodness, I was just trying to get something to eat before she called me. And my brain was in pure survival mode.
1: Wow. First thing I gotta say is, uh, and, and I said this should have been the first thing I said when we signed on is, is thank you, thank you for your service, uh, for real. Um, thank you. Can I keep it real? Can I keep it real with you?
2: You sure can. Go ahead.
1: And and you kind of open up the door. You open up the door. Thank you, Lindsay, for being a bad bitch. I just got to say it. I mean, you said, you know, I was going to ask you, did you really, did you really say get up, bitch?
2: I, I did. I mean, I, and I don't even know why that was the first, the first thing that came to my head, but it was like, you know, it's like that one of those tough love situations. And it's just like, yo, like this can't happen. I got babies at home. Like I got, yeah. I got a, and I got to get home to have a mother. I have, you know, I have brothers. I got, I have a, a life to get back to this can't happen. It's almost like you looking in the mirror, like having that pep talk with yourself. Said, no, I, I am the strong one. I am the one that will defeat this situation and take it head on. I, I never thought I would have to have that type of conversation. But, you know, when you're trying to live, I, I guess is the best way to put it, you will say a lot of things to yourself. And so I joke and say I was very motivational that day. And that's what I said to myself. And I mean, since then, I've had to look myself in the mirror and say the same thing because you know, you have your ups and downs after trauma, and some days you just don't want to. You just don't want to do anything, but you have to keep pushing on.
1: That's what's up, man. And that's awesome. Uh, and just, you know, and I know you heard this before, but I'm going to say it to you um, you're an inspiration um, mm, to everybody. You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, get up, just get up. You know what I'm saying? It ain't that easy, like you said, but, but, I don't care what's going on, get up, get up. That's awesome. Uh, mm-hmm. Man, I don't even know which direction to go from here. Can you tell us the, the impact that your critical incident had on your family and your friends?
2: Oh, sure thing. Uh, you know, what, what you don't realize at the time is how something you're involved in can deep affect so many other people. Rather, they were standing right next to you, like my partner. Or they were on the other side of, like, literally on the other side of the world. So, you know, I I am married. Like I said, my husband is not in law enforcement. He has gotten those calls over the years of, "Hey, baby, I got in a fight today, or this happened, or that happened." But I'm the one that called him from the back of that ambulance. And anyone who's a first responder, you know, we're we're, we're trained to be like, "Hey, one day if something happens." You know, know who's, know who's going to make that phone call if you can't and what's going to be said. But you really don't think about how you're going to break the news. And anybody who's ever been involved in a critical incident, whether you're law enforcement or not, a car accident or anything, when the phone's ringing, those are the longest rings in the world. And then you're thinking, how in the world do I say this? And my husband worked nights at the time. And I, I he answered the phone and I said, I need you to I need you to sit up like I need you to sit up, wake up, like put your feet on the floor. And because he doesn't wake up as quickly as I do. And I'm like, I need your full attention. And out of my mouth came, I'm okay, but I just got shot three times. I need you to hurry and get to the hospital. Mm. You know, and I often tell people I'm married to a caveman. And I don't mean that in a negative way at, at all, meaning he is a protector. He is a provider. So that's very hard for a protector and a provider to hear somebody just harm somebody he loves. And, so he had to jump into oh my goodness i got to get my our kids i got to get to my wife mode and then my mom lives here and my 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 brother who i called who lived here as well he had to break the news to her and going back a little bit my my dad was shot and killed in a home invasion i was 17 when so we were still living in georgia and so you know when things like this happens That brings back previous traumas for people, right? So here's my mom who had two detectives show up at, my my parents were divorced at the time, but we are still very close, had two detectives show up at our house and say, hey, this is what happened to your ex-husband for your loss. And then now my brother has to call her and tell her, hey, your daughter, my sister just got shot. We got to get to the hospital. So it's, it's a huge rippling effect. And, and and my first department in Georgia, nine days before my shooting happened, they lost an officer. His name was Anton Tony, you know, young officer. He's the one that wanted to be a cop since he was a little kid, you know, mm-hmm. and he was well-loved by the community, well-loved by the department. It just turned 33 days before some teenagers decided, for whatever reason, they wanted to kill a cop that day. And... Mm-hmm. Tony didn't get a second chance. You know, he did not get a second chance. So my first department is still reeling from that loss. And then through the police channels, they get a call that I've just been shot. So it just, it affects so many people and so many people still have that memory. And one of my college friends who's a deputy in Tennessee, he's a chaplain. So he goes to a lot of the chaplain conferences and has a lot of connections. There was a um, uh, a chaplain that he knows from Israel that heard about my shooting and and was sending me well wishes from a completely different part of the world, you know? So yeah. things like this just don't happen in a bubble. It doesn't just happen to the officers or the victim or the suspect. It happens to everybody in that community, rather you know that first responder or you. Don't. So we have definitely had our ups and downs yeah. My daughter, not, not so much. She's the youngest one. Hasn't struggled. My son has definitely dealt with some anxiety things uh, because he understands the world a lot differently and what that could have meant for our family if I didn't survive. And so we have to be better at taking care of our kids when we meet trauma because it affects them as well. But it affects them in a different way that we're not used to dealing
1: with. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. Um... That's a lot. So you kind of touched on something I wanted to kind of go into. So uh, we're all familiar with what happened to DeMar Hamlin from the Buffalo Bills. And, you know, he was out there doing what he loved uh, and he had an issue. He had an injury and he pretty much flatlined right on the field. And so you know, for me, just like you being in law enforcement and seeing uh, so much good and so much ugly, you know, it was amazing because everybody was praying. Everybody didn't matter if you were black or white, didn't matter if you were gay or straight, didn't matter if you were a public or the Democrat, Muslim. I mean, it didn't matter. Everybody was praying and moving in the same direction. Um, and so I guess my question for you is, is when your incident happened, when you were able to process and everybody knew you were okay, did you see a similar effect? Like people who would normally get down together, you know what I'm saying? Or be around or get along. Did you see that because of what happened to you? It kind of brought people together?
2: Overall, Yes. Definitely. Overall, I did see people coming together. And I think when you're watching somebody else go through something that you're not connected to on TV, it's really easy to have a disconnect. Right. But then when it happens to somebody you have personally shared space with, have their phone number, have to see them at family functions or at social functions, it hits you differently. right? Mm-hmm. And. Um, my brother was on the the Phoenix Suns Basketball Authority here, and they had an event on November 4th that I already had tickets to go to. And I said, I'm going 100%. And everybody's like, how? You just got out of the hospital. I said, I'm going because people are expecting to see me, I Want them to know that I'm okay. And it did open up conversation because, you know, you get a wide spectrum of how people feel about law enforcement, even yeah. in more professional settings, things like that. And then you get people that are like, oh, my goodness, like, (laughs) how are you here? Like, how are you doing? It opens up a lot of different dialogue. But at the same time, I did get negativity, too, uh, from people. I had things said to me like, oh, well, that's what you signed up for, you know, or, you know, "Well, that's what you get. Cause you know you're a cop. I've had that happen to me, and I'm like, I signed up to help people. I signed up to protect people who always don't have the support that they need to be protected. I didn't. I didn't sign up to be somebody's bullet trap. Uh, I and I didn't sign up to have to tell my four year old that mommy got shot. I, mm. I didn't sign up for that. And so it does open up a lot of conversations and you have to be ready for them because you'll get a lot, a lot of positive, but some of the negative can really tear you down. And, you know, I do, I live in Arizona and I I had a, I kind of joked with somebody one time that was they didn't know what I did for a living and they didn't know I'd been involved in the shooting. And then that came up and then they're kind of looking at me sideways about it because they said a lot of negative things about police officers. And then, too, I told them in the area that I worked in overall, like a- Arizona's black population is very small, mm. right? It's grown over the last few years, but overall it's small. And I, I jokingly said, you know, I, I basically got shot by the only black dude I've seen all week. And then their eyes got all big. And I said, so don't make assumptions about me. Don't make assumptions about who the suspect was. Right. I, that man didn't care about what I looked like, what my partner looked like, with right. any of that. I mean, he. And to be honest, we interrupted what was supposed to be a murder-suicide. It's basically what happened. So he didn't care about any of that. I said, so when people come at me with that type of negativity, I said, well, you don't live my life. And the same negativity you're giving me, I'd like you to tell my family that. I'd like you to tell them that I deserve to get shots because I donned this uniform. I've helped so many people. I feel like I've done a lot of good things during my career, but I didn't sign up to basically have my career snatched from under my feet because I'm medically retired. I wasn't able to return back to work. And I, wasn't, I, I didn't sign up, like I said, to have to tell my, my kids mommy got shot or I have to explain to them why mommy's having a panic attack and what that looks like for them and for me, you know? So, like I said, overall, it's been really, really good. And a lot of people have come together, but every once in a while you'll get those little, those little jabs in there that kind of stick with you. But I, I really have to have those conversations like we were talking about earlier with myself in the mirror and remind myself all the good that have come out of the situation and all the things that I'm still here to be able to do, not just for myself, but for people around me.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about uh, and I'm sorry, you know, uh, to know about how your dad passed away. Um, but, you know, when you said that, the first thing that came to my mind was, OK, OK, that's not the first time she had to get up. You see what I'm saying? That's not the first time you had to get up. Uh, that just that just rung out to me. And you've kind of alluded to uh, some of the care that comes uh, during the critical incident. After your physical wound started to heal, uh, did you get additional support and uh, you know uh, everything? Pretty much everything you needed.
2: Yes, I did. So the so like I said, I I, I got shot on a Monday. I got released from the hospital on Wednesday. Well, Thursday, I had an already standing appointment with my therapist. I was already seeing a therapist even before my shooting occurred. And the reason why that was the year before, which is 2017, I started seeing a therapist because I was diagnosed with postpartum depression. And, and just, I was like, you know what? I need to take this seriously. I can't go out on the street every day and continue to tell people what they need to do to take care of themselves if I'm not doing that myself. Like, that tends to feel yucky after a while if I'm saying, oh, take care of yourself, take care of yourself, and I'm not taking care of myself. So I already had an established relationship with going to therapy and talking about what was going on with me. And being open and honest, my husband was the reason why I ended up going back to my OBGYN in the first place, because he bravely came to me and said, I love you, but something's off. This isn't the Lindsay that we are all used to. And my therapist called me Wednesday to confirm my appointment for Thursday. She didn't know what happened. I told her what happened. She says, do you want to reschedule? I said, absolutely not. I will see you tomorrow. So a lot of times in first responder world, the first time a first responder even sees a therapist of any kind is after a critical incident. And it's, it's hard, you know, to, to open up. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, so, and we're diverting, but I guess we'll just divert. Um, several years ago, um, I was a detective and I remember I was on call. I got the call, uh, And I knew I had, I didn't have much information. I just knew I had a dead body. So I'm responding. And I remember getting to the scene, and the coroner looked at me and he said, uh, It's like three, four in the morning. He says, Kevin, uh, it's pretty bad. You know, and so just that quick, I'm thinking, Well, hell, how bad can it be? I already know, you know, somebody's dead. You know, how bad can it be? So I go in, uh, and it's a child, and um, she fell down the elevator shaft. And, uh, and so, you know, we're working that scene and, uh, you know, and what, um, what really got me, Lindsay, was that she was the same size as my daughter and she wore the same pajamas. My daughter wore the bed. So my bad. (laughs) So. When I left that night, I wasn't the same. I was not the same. I went home. I hugged everybody in my house. And during that time, we didn't have critical incident debriefings. So I walked around 13, 14 years and I never talked about it. I didn't talk to my wife. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, Hey, get back out there, go to work, do your job. Never talked about it. And so, uh, was involved in another critical incident about 15 years later. And at that time we had critical incident debriefing peer, you know, debriefing, And so we're in there debriefing everybody, law enforcement, dispatchers, EMTs, we're in there debriefing. And what do you think came up? My incident from 15 years ago in Lindsay, I'm trying to tell you, um, it was like, Taking off a rucksack that weighed 200 pounds. When I finally, when I finally got a chance to talk about it, and so, you know, that's why you know one of my questions was for you was, did you get what you needed? Because it's hard, you know. what I'm saying we we walk around right in our industries and in our professions, and and we're trained and we're fed and we have guns and tools, and it's hard to say I need help wasn't easy for me, you know, it, and it's a hard thing to do. And so, man, I didn't mean to go there, but we ended up there, but it, but, but, it's okay. But what you think, what you thinking?
2: First, thank you for sharing that. Cause I, you know, and just the emotion that you had about it right now, you know what I mean? So it's, I think, I think what people fail to realize a lot of times and going back to what I was saying earlier, people say things like, well, this is what you signed up for. You didn't sign up for that. That's not a memory you signed up for. You didn't sign up for those emotions, right? And I didn't sign up for the things that followed, not just my shooting, but other critical incidents that I've been involved in. But the thing is, we have to offload it as we go, right? And early in my career, I wasn't taught that either. It was, you're gonna see all these bad things, but nobody tells us what to do when the bad thing happens. Tactically, we're great. Muscle memory tactics, boom, boom. And I, like, when I do presentations, I'll speak to people from different departments, different tenures, and I'm like, if something popped off, even me, even though I'm retired, we will pretty much move in the same way. But we will process this very differently because we're different people emotionally. A lot of us come to the job with trauma already, like I shared with you about my dad. Mm -hmm. Some people come with unresolved trauma to the job, and that affects how you respond to similar incidents or don't respond. For me... Death notification calls were not my thing because the detectives were very cold Mm. and very heartless, I feel like. And I always remember, and this is before even I was going to be a police officer, if I ever had to break bad news, it would never be like that. Mm. And I don't know those detectives' names. They're probably retired now, but I still remember that till this day. My dad died in 97, you know. And so those things stick with us. And when we don't take the time to offload it as we go, you know, a lot of us are type A in first responder world, and we like to plan things out. Well, guess what? Trauma and that meltdown is not going to send you a notification before it arrives. Yeah. It could be something as simple as you knocking over a stack of papers, your duty egg falling over, or a loud noise just jarring you. And it yeah. brings all of that back. And so we have so many resources available to us now. Uh, Counseling isn't the only one. I really encourage people to go to counseling, go to therapy. I think every first responder should. But I mean, there's cold plunge therapy, neural feedback, hyperbaric chambers, there's working out. You know, if you're into the metaphysical stuff, you can get your chakras realigned. Like, There's all this stuff that you can do. But the number one thing we should be doing is talking. Because when your cup gets full, and then one more trauma, you don't have anywhere to put that. And I like to remind first responders, we are humans. We are not superheroes. I love, I love a superhero. Don't get me wrong. I have Superman on my keychain, but most of us, like superheroes, have tragic origin stories, right? And our weaknesses don't take much. Yeah. Clothes you can take off and wash if they get free. But when we are damaged. We can get repaired, but we're, we're, we're not as strong as we were before. So when that next trauma comes along, if we don't have good practices in place, it's very easy for us to come apart. So we have to be careful with likening ourselves to superheroes, because if you read comics, if you watch a superhero movies, it doesn't take much for them to fall. And we have to remember we're human and we're allowed to feel. You're allowed to have emotions about the things that you see and because it sticks with you just like you said i'm glad you got that opportunity years later but just think how long said how heavy that was yeah. and we do that not just one two three two, many times throughout shift alone sometimes yeah. and we really have to take that into account
1: yeah and i don't think um you know public safety period you know fire emts police you know uh people don't realize sometimes that we can't unsee you know, I'm saying what we've seen sometimes, or or we can't, you know, those emotions or those incidents we go through, we can't, it's not like men in black, where they hold up the little pen, right. And make it go away. You're right. You know, you, you gotta, you gotta do something with it. You know, uh, you know, back in the day when I was growing up, there was a song called, uh, I think Rex and effect sang it, it was check yourself before you wreck yourself. You remember that song? I sure do. It's real. I mean, it's real. It's not just a song. It's real. And this has been awesome. I'm going to get, Lindsay, I'm going to get, I'm going to get personal. I'm going to ask you a personal question. If you're comfortable, if you're not, that's fine. Um, But I'm curious to know, and I'm sure the listening audience wants to know as well. um, The person that shot you, have you forgiven that person?
2: So I'm, I feel like I'm working on it. And what, what I mean by that is, when this all first happened, I was never angry at him. I was never mad. It's supposed to get shot. <laughs> yes, it does. I was frustrated. But I was never angry. At all, all I felt at the time was, I really feel sad for him that he felt like that was his only way out of that situation. Mm. You know, one, see, must have some serious things going on in his life that he's beat on this woman with her child in the next room. He, he drifts the way he does. Uh, I mean, he had a, he had an extensive criminal record, but also he had parents. You know, he had parents that sent me and my partner well no wishes and things like that. So he's affected his own family as well, her family, my family. And I was like, "Wow, like, you felt like that was your only way out. You were going to kill this woman and kill yourself. And who knows what could what could have happened if her daughter had been home at the same time, who I think was about fourteen at the time." So. I got angry. I didn't get angry. I will admit this. I got angry probably about eight months after my shooting occurred because I was home for eight months and then I was going back to work on light duty. And my son started having anxiety issues and I didn't realize what anxiety and worry looked like on. He was five when I was heading back to work and he just, you know, and I'm hearing about these changes in him from other people and i felt like a bad mom because i'm in the house with every day and i didn't notice them but i was also left up in my own stuff but his teacher is very close to him. She tells me about what's going on. And I, I i will tell you, Kelvin, I got so angry. I wasn't angry until that point because now I can take it for me, but I can't watch my kid go through that. Mm-hmm. And still, my son just turned nine last month. There are still questions he asked me I don't have answers to because the person who's responsible for all this chaos chose to kill themselves and I will never get the answers to those questions. So I, me and my husband have to answer them the best way that we can. And so I want to, I know some of some of my extra religious friends that hear this, they always tell me all the time, well, you know, you should forgive. And I said, that's a hard thing sometimes depending on the situation. Like I said, I really want to, I feel sorry for the young man. I feel sorry for his family that he's put them in that position. But when my kid gets involved, I just, it, it, it takes me in a different direction because I'm his protector and I'm supposed to be able to make things better. And some of that I can't make better for him.
1: Yeah. And that's real. Uh, and, you know, and I appreciate your response. I know it's uh, not an easy question to answer, but but, but I do appreciate, appreciate your response. And, you know, you've been through a lot. And like the old folks in my community used to say, you do the best you can. You know what I'm saying? That's all you could do, you know, is do the best you can. Um, Gosh, I could talk to you all night, Lindsay, for real. This has been awesome. Uh, So you do some consulting and and public speaking and motivational speaking. If somebody wanted, I don't care if they're in Puerto Rico or Las Vegas or wherever they are. If someone wanted to, to get in contact with you to say, Lindsay, please come and share your story with us. How would they get in contact with you?
2: Well, I have an Instagram, which is Officer Lindsay Talks, and um, again, that's that's my Instagram. And then my email address is lindsaytalks.com. and I also have an email address. Uh, sometimes people like the email better, which uh, is fine. And that is l m l o n g, and then the word consulting at gmail.com
1: that's awesome that's awesome uh if one more question and it's a curveball if you had an opportunity to speak to the person that shot you right now what would you say
2: you know i i'm a questions person so i think i have just a lot of questions Mm -hmm. you know you know, I, I want to get to the beginning. Like, yeah. What happened that took you in this direction? And, you know, what about me and my partner being in that space at that moment took you to the point, you know? And, you know, did you not feel like there was going to be help hmm. out there for you? People can still go to jail and still get help. You know, you can, you can go to prison and still get certain services and maybe reflect. And, you know, I would, I would just have a lot of questions for him. I don't know that he would want to answer them for me because clearly he didn't like law enforcement but i would just wonder like what is it about me and my partner walking in that room made you decide you know what this is go time this is this is going to happen right now you know because i I, there was nothing in his eyes that's the sad part about it there was nothing there and when I, i assume because i saw nothing there he felt like he had nothing that's like really that nothing to lose look. Like even my son said when he was four, he says, you know, I wish I'd been there that day because I had to put my police stuff on and I would have stood mm. in between you and the bad guy and told him, don't you wow. mommy. And I said, baby, as much as I appreciate that, and as much as I know you're trying to protect me, there was nothing there that man would not have seen you nor heard you at all. You know? So I, I just want to know at what point did he lose his sense of hope? Because that's, that's basically what that boils down to.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well, that's awesome. Well, Lindsay, I have thoroughly uh, enjoyed this roller coaster of a conversation we've had. Um, I think you're awesome. Uh, I hope you keep telling your story. I'm so glad that we met because of a mutual friend, Paul Butler. And now you are my friend. We met virtually, but you are my friend and uh, and I appreciate you. And I'm proud of you. Just for the whole experience, I'm proud of you because you have the courage to talk about it, to help other people. I'm proud of you because you fought to get up and keep your family together. But I'm most proud of you because you took three strikes, but you didn't strike out. That's what came to mind for me. You took three strikes, but you didn't strike out. And I thank you so much for being here tonight.
2: Thank you so much for having me. And if I can say anything to anybody out there, just... Keep putting one foot in front of the other each day. It will get easier. And please be your own advocate because only you know what you need and don't need in certain situations. And you have to fight for you because you are your biggest cheerleader. And if anybody ever needs anything, you have my contact information. I can't help you with the issue. I know plenty of people that uh, I can put you in touch with to be able to help you out of that dark face or just get some answers and some resources going.
1: That's what's up. Again, thank you so much. Would you come back one day if we had some other issues or something else to talk about?
2: Oh, definitely. I, I sure would. This was a great conversation. Like you say, any friend of Paul Butler's is a friend of mine, so I'm so glad we've gotten to meet virtually and hopefully yeah. one day we'll get to meet in person.
1: Sounds good. All right. You've listened to another episode of Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits. I'll see you next time. Peace.
0: The Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Waits, executive producer Ken Johnson. Find the Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio spotify stitcher TuneIn, odyssey amazon music or where you get your podcast find kevin waits on facebook at kevin waits and join the safe conversations group follow the mean line media podcast network on ig at mean line media get the mean o-line media app in the app store or google play the safe conversations with kevin waits podcast is a mean o-line media production